Okay, we are on tape. Outstanding. Turn the Word of God to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew 1, where we have a two-verse development on the birth of Christ. Then we will uh, turn to Luke chapter 2, where we can at least get a seven-verse paragraph. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study this morning, for your hand of protection over us. Father, uh, hedge us about and protect us from any that might come in here and disrupt our services this morning. Set aside distractions and give us concentration upon the truth of your word. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1. We have, at this point, been examining some differences between Matthew's record and Luke's record. Uh, We saw in Luke the angel who appeared to Mary and gave the announcement of her uh, pending pregnancy and the issues there. And we then, after that, turned to Matthew 1 and we saw the angel's appearance to uh, the father, the adopted father, we would say, Joseph, in a dream. And uh, having spent, I think, enough time on these issues, we recognize we're ready now to address the birth itself. And... uh, Once again, we observe several differences between the father's uh, perspective and the mother's perspective in terms of pregnancy and childbirth, delivery, and all the rest. And in in some senses, it's even quite amusing. Maybe it's only amusing in my mind and my way of thinking, in which case maybe I'm a little warped. I don't know. (laughs) But I find it amusing and interesting nonetheless. We have... uh, the description in verse 18 that says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. But it's, it's, uh, the birth itself is not actually detailed. The uh, word that Joseph receives about the pregnancy, his uh, misunderstanding, which is quite natural that, uh, that his fiancée is pregnant and he wants to call off this wedding, um, and the things there. And then he wakes up from his dream in obedience to the to the instructions. And it says in verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born. See, that's how chapter 2 begins. So the actual birth is not really dealt with in any length whatsoever other than uh, Joseph's uh, obedience to the instructions of the Lord, his um, the leadership and the uh, protection that he offered here at the end of this chapter, and then we'll get more details on Joseph in chapter 2 when he uh, leads his family to Egypt, when he stays there for the appointed period of time, when he returns, and the issues there. Really, the, the bulk of what we know about Joseph we know about because of Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. So all that being said, that's all the information we get on the birth of of Jesus from Joseph's side of things, is uh, simply that he married her, kept her a virgin, a son was born, he he obeyed the uh, instructions by calling him Jesus, and that's that. So join me now in Luke chapter 2, where we get the mother's view of things. And lo and behold, it wasn't as simple as all that. I mean, here she is, nine months pregnant. She's got to ride this donkey, and they've got to travel all the way down to Bethlehem, and there's no room for them in the inn, and they end up in this manger, and then she has this baby, and then all these shepherds come traipsing through. And, you know, we get much more detail from the mother's viewpoint <laughs> as far as all of the uh, things that had to happen here, or did happen here, in the process of bringing this child into the world. It says in Luke 2, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then in the same region there were some shepherds, and it goes on to describe the appearance before the shepherds, and we will tackle that in a later study. So focusing on verses 1 through 7 here this morning and establishing the time frame for these things, we have uh, really some remarkable historical work that we can do. We'll just barely touch on it here this morning, but there's more available in the through the Bible notebook, and then there's more available in uh, some other resources as well. Point 1 in our study Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus Augustus, if you want his full Roman name, or just call him Caesar Augustus, (laughs) ruled the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Caesar Augustus, as he's commonly referred to and as he's referred to here in verse 1, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus Augustus, ruled the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. One of the most extraordinary characters in any study of the Roman Empire or even Western civilization as a whole. The adopted nephew and heir of Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar, known originally as Octavius or Octavianus, uh, took his uh, adopted father or adopted uncle's full name in his title, and he ruled the empire after the uh, dissolution of the second of the two famous triumvirates of the first century B.C. Ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Some will dispute that or they'll add a, they'll have maybe an earlier date, like a 36 B.C. date for the beginning of uh, Augustus's rule. It was really contested prior to 27. It was really contested until such time as uh, Mark Antony was defeated and and killed and Cleopatra took her life and all the things that happened there. But his undisputed rule beginning in 27 B.C. is a good point to mark that out to 14 AD upon his death. All right. The um, man most responsible for the just the end of the republic and the beginning of the imperial period of Roman history and often referred to as the first emperor if uh, if his uncle Julius Caesar does not get such credit. But this helps us to set our time frame, the time frame for the birth of Christ. Now secondly, who is this Quirinius fellow, very well known, very attested from historical sources, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, served as the governor of Syria from 6 to 9 AD, alright, this was his official governorship, and because of this, uh, many skeptics and those who despise the Bible to begin with will try to find an alleged contradiction in the biblical record of the account of Christ's birth. He served as governor of Syria from 6 to 9 A.D., but served Augustus in that region in various other capacities, dating all the way back to 12 B.C., continuing on even two years after Augustus' death till 16 A.D. He was in the region in various capacities. Publius Sulpicius Quirinius served as governor of Syria from 6 to 9 A.D. That we know from irrefutable historical Sources, Josephus and other contemporary Roman sources. But he also served Augustus in that region in various other capacities, military, political, uh, administrative, and so forth. Dating all the way back to 12 BC and running through not only Augustus' life, but even two years after the death of Augustus, all the way to 16 AD. It is very likely and widely thought that Quirinius' governorship from 6 to 9 AD was actually his second governorship, that he had a previous governorship from 6 to 5 BC, but that is not uh, totally validated by historical sources and is still actually in doubt in secular terms. Um, Other uh, functions that he served in, as I mentioned, were military, including crushing a rebellion in the Galatian region, the Cilician Gates uh, region, somewhat north of Tarsus, where Paul grew up, and other capacities. Um, now, where the the main conflict comes in is if we accept Luke's date here, and we do because it's the biblical record <laughs> of when Christ was born, uh, we say 
the, the real issue comes in in terms of verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, and if the only governorship date we accept is 6 to 9 AD, then we're left with a, with a question. And it's not new or unique because even the church fathers, Tertullian among them, uh, addressed this in his commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, 6 to 9 AD for Quirinius is a secular date and uh, not a part of inspired scripture. But we have another problem because uh, we have Herod here mentioned. And uh, Herod died in 4 BC. Alright? So, we're left saying, well, what is it? You know, Herod was the king when Jesus was born and then ordered all the babies to be murdered in, in uh, two years of age and younger and so forth. And so they say, well, Christ must have been born before... 4 BC, but we have a problem now with this Quirinius being mentioned because uh, he didn't begin his reign until 6 AD. In other words, there's about a 10 year gap. Christ could have been born in one, but not the other, or not both, see. And it, it all hinges upon what we do with the verse here in verse 2. This was the first census indicating. Um, a second census, indicating additional censuses, census, sensei, <laughs> the plural of census. All right. Um, also, the very language uh, uh, of while, the term first, could be rendered before. So this was a census, or the census, taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. A much more uh, famous census, again historically detailed, that took place in 7 to 8 A.D., uh, did indeed occur while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It was recorded by Josephus and other secular Roman sources. But if the census that required uh, Joseph and Mary to return to Bethlehem was not was an earlier census, then we have no problems and we have no issues. And in fact, this not only appears likely, but it was also attested in other uh, secular records. For example, in, in Egypt, they were required to have this census taken every 14 years. And so a census about this time of 6 to 5 BC for the birth of Christ would fit with a later census taken in, say, 6 or 7 AD. So all that to be said, that you may come across reading at some point where a skeptic will say, well, there's a contradiction here in the Bible because Quirinius was governor in 6 to 9 AD, etc., etc. Understand that he likely had an earlier governorship as well as a later governorship, and also understand that he was in the region dating back all the way to 12 BC. And so there's really no, no conflict here once you do some homework and put some things together. Also, the nature of the term here for census and also the nature of the event is that it appears to be related to taxation. They were not necessarily concerned with demographics. <laughs> they were not necessarily concerned with, you know, population figures just simply for the sake of population figures. You know, we do a census every 10 years in this country and the purpose is not for, uh, we do tons of demographic studies and other things as well. But primarily, do you know why our nation does our census? It's so that we can have the appropriate representation in the federal government, in the, the House of Representatives and so forth, balanced by population and the things involved there. Um, when the Romans were taking censuses, it was for taxation. <laughs> it was to properly reap the, re the revenues from their conquered people that they were justly entitled to for, uh, for you know, properly conquering them at various times. It's um, often commented upon that it's, uh, the Roman census never ever required a, a conquered person to go back to his homeland, to go back to his home city, that the Romans were content simply to tax the people where they were based upon the, the land they possessed, based upon where they were living, where they were working, and so forth. Um, again, what those skeptics... Um, are overlooking and while they're so caught up in their Roman history and their understanding of, of Roman uh, census procedures is that they're overlooking the urgency that the Jewish people had for maintaining their tribal inheritance, for maintaining their land possessions. Even though Joseph and Mary are indeed living in Nazareth, they are sons of David. They have a tribal inheritance in Bethlehem. They don't have any, they don't have a home in Bethlehem. They don't have any, uh, any residence there to live in, but they have an allotted portion of land. And 
They're very, uh, they're going to return all the way there, even in the, in the latter stages of her pregnancy, to make certain that their claim to that Davidic property is properly noted, properly registered, and properly taxed, properly paid for in this regard. And I find this to be not a contradiction or not a, uh, not a conflict with Roman practice. I find it to be wonderfully consistent with the Jewish practice and the Jewish expectation of the coming Christ being indeed uh, a Davidic heir. And we will see that in the uh, uh, scriptures that we look at here momentarily. Point three, Joseph and Mary return to Bethlehem in order to register their Davidic property taxation. Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem in order to register their Davidic property taxation. As it says in verses 4 and 5. Verse 3 says, Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. I hope in the three years we took to teach the Life of David series that we gleaned um, a bit of an understanding for tribal uh, federation uh, thinking. That, that they were organized in families, clans, tribes, Okay, as we broke it down from the tribe to the clan to the family to the house. All right, And here was uh, Joseph of the house and family of David. In order to register, along with Mary, recognizing that she also was of the house and family of David, when we get into the Luke genealogy, that becomes clear. Both parents here were of Davidic origin, Davidic descent, both with land grants that, that, and property that had, to be, uh, that had to be dealt with. Point four. Now, this all seems coincidental. This all seems... Uh, like these are all the circumstances and details of life that are that are driving these things from happening. But remember who's in charge. All right. The perfect timing of God determined this moment for the birth of the Christ child. Luke 2 verses 6 and 7. The perfect timing of God determined this moment for the birth of the Christ child. He had to be born in Bethlehem. And the father organized the circumstances and details to bring this about. It wasn't man bringing it about. It wasn't Joseph saying, oh, wow, I'm going to be the adopted father of the Christ. Let's try to engineer whatever we can to say, look, we're fulfilling prophecy. All right. This was a decree given by Caesar thousands of miles away, having the effect that the father predetermines for his own purposes and for his own glory. The perfect timing of God determined this moment for the birth of the Christ child. I just marvel quite often uh, in my own life and thinking about circumstances and details and times and dates and different things that happened and the way they happened and, and things that, that you know human beings could never have planned. And yet the Father is, is working all things together for good, just like Romans 8.28 says he is. And it, uh, I don't know why we continue to be amazed other than the Father is pleased to continue to amaze us on a daily basis, that this is the day the Lord has made. This is an opportunity to recognize his glory and to give him the praise for it. So for the bulk of the message this morning, we're going to focus on this. We're going to focus on point four, and we're going to give you uh, six sub-points under this to recognize the hand of God, the providence at work in fulfilling prophecies, in fulfilling promises, and bringing about the maximum glory for Jesus Christ. Remember, when God makes a promise, he keeps it, and he does not need human help in doing so. <laughs> he doesn't need us to come along and, and try to help him in, in keeping his own promises. That may sound basic. That may sound uh, foolish. Say, well, why do you bother saying such a thing? Well, because all too often in our human viewpoint, in the weakness of our flesh, to this very day, Christians decide that they need to help God in fulfilling his promises. That we need to help the plan of God a little bit by doing this or doing that or finding some way to do something. And it's nothing new. This goes, I mean, all the way back. Think about Abraham. My favorite illustration on this is Abraham. God promised him a son. And uh, Sarah got a good laugh about it. And they uh, 
she came up with this plan and Abraham went along with it. You know, she didn't twist his arm very hard when she brought him this young Egyptian handmaid and said, here, you can have a son. Well, we'll just help God out. God promised you a son, but, you know, come on, you're 75 years old. I'm 65 years old. This isn't really going to happen. We've been married 50 years now and no babies have happened yet. And so, in an effort to help God out with his promises, they go through this procedure and Ishmael is born. And what do you know? Anytime we depart from the plan of God, we end up causing more trouble than we think we're trying to fix when we're trying to get something done ourselves. God says, no, I don't need your help fulfilling my promises. I'm going to fulfill my promises. You're going to have a son. Problem is, you're not old enough yet. <laughs> See, this isn't nearly miraculous enough for a 65-year-old woman to have a baby. What are you talking about? I want you to be 90 before this kid gets born. This is going to be a miracle of miracles. So, Perfect timing, and God does not need our help in bringing these things about. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. It's only in our human viewpoint that we think that, well, you know, the, the baby came early, the baby came late, as far as that works. See, I, whatever, I, I was four days late, I think, whatever, January 14th. My due date was January 10th. Say, well... Whose due date was that? Was my, doc my doctor wasn't some kind of divinely inspired prophet. Okay? Nothing, nothing locked in stone about January 10th. Uh, the, the perfect due date was January 14th. That's what the Father designed. All right? And we say, well, somebody else was early. Somebody else was right on time. Wasn't Christopher born right on, his, right on his due date? Okay. Had that wrong. All right? But that's all human reasoning anyway. With Christ, though, the days were completed in the Father's plan and program, the days were completed. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. That, that phrase all in itself implies additional children born later, which we understand to be true. And she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We will be looking at each of these items here this morning. First of all, sub-point A, Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of the time. Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the perfection of the Father's plan, Isaiah 25.1. Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4. 4. Don't confuse that with Ephesians 1.10. Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the perfection of the Father's plan. So, join me in Galatians 4. We'll look at it. Don't confuse this with the future dispensation, which is the dispensation of the fullness of times, plural. And this is the fullness of the time, singular. And there's even a difference in the Ephesians 1.10 passage and the Galatians 4.4 passage. One uses chronos, the other uses kairos. Okay, we understand the fullness of the times is the future uh, dispensation of the perfect age, the fulfillment of the thousand generations of blessing that was promised to those who love him, that was promised to Jesus Christ and, and uh, the rule over the entire earth that follows the millennial age and precedes the uh, delivering up of the kingdom to the Father and the inauguration of eternity future. All right. Galatians 4.4 4. There's a uh, logical development here that begins with verses 1 through 3, the difference between uh, a free child and a slave child and an heir and some things that go on into um, verses 6 and following. And I'm going to just pass all of that context here this morning to simply highlight verse 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son... Born of a woman, born under the law. Now that's remarkable too. If you think about Adam and Eve in the age of innocence, and they fell into sin uh, through the commission of that original sin, and the age of innocence came to an end, the age of conscience was then in initiated, and yet in, even on the day that, that they fell, the Lord made that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The promise of the redemption of the human race was given there in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And 
A couple of sons get born. Well, lots of sons and daughters get born. But the two that we know about in Genesis 4 were Cain and Abel. We know Cain was of the evil one. We know that Abel... Uh, the shepherd was pleasing to the Lord. He brought acceptable sacrifices. He served the Lord. Okay. But he was not the Christ. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> he was the seed of the woman. He was Eve's son. And he loved the Lord and he served the Lord. He brought acceptable sacrifices and his faith still speaks to this very day. Um, but it was not the Father's plan for the promised kinsman redeemer of the human race to come in generation number two. All right? We're working on the generations at home on our family devotions at dinner time. We've got from Adam, we went Adam through Noah and then Noah through Abraham and so we can now do Adam through Abraham and then we're going to go Abraham to David and I guess eventually we'll have the whole genealogy down from Matthew 1. We'll go from Adam to Christ and we'll get all the, the generations there. But... It wasn't the plan of God for for Abel or Seth uh, to be the promised seed of the woman, kinsman, redeemer. In the fullness of time, he was born under the law. Was not born under conscience. Was not born under human government. The dispensation that was initiated after the flood. He was not born uh, in the age of promise. For example, Isaac, although he was in the line of promise, he was one link in that chain, but he was not the promised Christ. He was a son of promise, a miracle baby, son of promise, named by the Lord. A lot of typology there. His father was willing to sacrifice him, okay? But he was still a foreshadowing. He was still a picture. He was looking ahead to the coming Christ. Likewise, the Christ didn't come during the age of grace. You say, would such a thing have even been conceivable? <laughs> you know, the Father could have brought law to a close and initiated grace. It's hard for us to conceive of that happening without the cross. Okay? But try to conceptualize an age of, of law coming to a close, an age of grace being instituted and the church being inaugurated, and then would that have been a good time for the Christ to then be born? Well, no. Not at all. Because he's the head of the church. How could that happen? Okay, The perfect timing for uh, the Christ to be born was indeed under the law. And, we might, and it says, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. See, law condemned. Law pointed out to the human race that no one measured up. By the law, no one was made perfect or could be made perfect, and no one could achieve the Father's absolute standard of righteousness through the law, through obedience to the law. Only Jesus Christ could fulfill the law and obey it in every respect. So we understand the perfection of the Father's plan, of the Father's timing of bringing Jesus Christ into the world. In earthly terms, of course, different authors have done different things. I like um, work that Cairns did, Earl Cairns in his Christian history, Christianity Through the Centuries. We have it over here in the church library. Who pointed out that preceding the Humanity of Jesus Christ, of course, came some vast sweeping empires. The Egyptian civilization of the pharaohs and the pyramids and all the great building achievements there of uh, you know the architecture and all of that. The great achievements of the Babylonians and all of their architecture and hanging gardens and all the glory uh, and even uh, even a legal system under Hammurabi and so forth. The vast empires of uh, uh, empire of Alexander the Great. Um. And it's it's interesting, and even the the rising of Rome that preceded the the humanity of Christ, Cairns uh, does a good job at highlighting those details and illustrating how they were preparatory, how they each one as with as much grandeur as they had, they fell short. And then he pointed out the pinnacle of philosophy, the pinnacle of human mental achievement, if you if you want to think of it in those terms, where the in the in the in the Greek mind they they developed this the the various systems of philosophy from Aristotle to Plato and Stoicism and all of the um, skepticism and all of the the, uh, the the brilliance of the Greek mind. 
even things to this day that we look back at, at, at their achievements in politics, democracy, mathematics, science, and everything else. And the pinnacle of the Greek mind couldn't find salvation. <laughs> you know? Thing with, things which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man. And the, the pinnacle of human thought could not provide for salvation. And it only left a greater emptiness preparing for the coming of the universal gospel message of Jesus Christ. Another item was the, the Roman Empire in terms of universal law, in terms of the Roman road. So much went into the arrival of Jesus Christ that in the first century A.D., when the gospel message was to be proclaimed to the world, it could indeed travel the world on the Roman roads under a system of peace, the Pax Romana, under the unified Roman law, in a universal language, the Koine Greek language, that the Father allowed Babel to be reversed for about a two-century span there, a three-century span there. And such preparations w existed in that time and no other time in world history. And it's an extraordinary thing to consider. In the uh, in fact, well, Koine then died out again and did not was no longer the the universal world language uh, in short time after that first century A.D. Other things. It's, it's remarkable. I've commented upon it recently that now for the second time since Babel, God is allowing a, a single language to dominate the world, and that being the English language. And uh, since one coincided with the first advent, I find myself wondering how close are we to the rapture of the church and the second advent of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 25.1, if you ever want a good verse that spotlights the perfection of the Father's plan, this is a good one pertaining not only to this particular point, but really everything that God does. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. What a memory verse. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. I mean... Just think about every every praise item you have in your prayer life, every Thanksgiving prayer you have up to offer um, is, is only a, a Thanksgiving item that you became aware of in time on this day or recently, but it was something that the Father had planned before the foundation of the world. <laughs> you know, we're giving Thanksgiving and praise for uh, the surgery that Randy Blair had yesterday. We're very thankful for the procedure and how well that it went and, and the answers to prayer that were... Uh, that were given in so many different ways. And, you know, the Father delights to give good things to His children. He delights to prove Himself faithful. He delights to accomplish these things. But in the plan of God, uh, what is this was uh, the 7th, so the 6th, you know, July 6, 2004, all those details were already arranged in eternity past as a part of the divine decrees. And the Father had a perfect plan lined up. The Son and the Holy Spirit were in perfect agreement with it. And they put the plan in motion from Alpha to Omega. They've been following it ever since. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So in the achievement of the Father's plan, if I ever uh, start to grow weary or lose heart or decide that, that it's taking too long, you know, that's, that's our, uh, our pitfall in the present church age is that, uh, well, the Lord's slow about His promises. No, He's not. He's not slow, as some would count slowness. He's patient, not wishing for any to perish. Remember, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years are as a day. We're the finite creatures of time. We're the ones that grow impatient. <laughs> if, uh, if the rapture would have come yesterday, it would have been too soon. Can we understand that? Because we're still here. The rapture didn't happen last night. It didn't happen this morning. It hasn't happened yet. It would have been too soon had it happened yesterday. There's folks today that need to be saved. They need to be a part of the body of Christ. Point B. Bethlehem fulfills the geographic birthplace prophecy. Micah 5.2 compared to Matthew 2 verses 4 through 6. My, uh, Bethlehem fulfills the geographic birthplace prophecy. See, God is doing everything perfectly. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So a, uh, a Gentile, pagan, unbelieving Caesar issues a decree 
Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem to obey that decree and to register, pay their taxes and all the rest. Meanwhile, God the Father is bringing about his perfect result. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 compared to Matthew 2 verses 4 through 6. And I think we're familiar with this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. There were other Bethlehems, by the way. In fact, there was even a Bethlehem not probably six miles from Nazareth in uh, the Galilean region up north. There were several Bethlehems. Lahem is bread and Beth is house. And so house of bread, any, any uh, center where a lot of bread got baked was going to be called Bethlehem back then. All right. But Bethlehem Ephrathah pinpoints which Bethlehem we're talking about. The Ephrathah clan within the tribe of Judah. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. As uh, various clans shrunk, they lost their prominence. They lost their. They got swallowed up by other clans in the breakdown of the divisions here of uh, clans, families, and houses. And Ephrathah, that tiny little place, too little to be among the clans of Judah. I mean, stop and consider. Uh, my, my children were asking me this the other day. The the uh, consider this clan. Consider. Um, the uh, well, it's just remarkable. My kids were asking me was was uh, was Rahab the the mother of, of Boaz? Was that the same Rahab that was the harlot there in in, in Joshua? Yeah, <laughs> you know the spies went in and she delivered them and ended up marrying one of them and and uh, then they have a boy named Boaz and a and a grandson named Obed and a great grandson you know named uh, um, uh, Jesse. And then here comes David. What a what a clan, tiny little clan, and even uh, even a, a prostitute thrown in there didn't exactly uh, uh, increase their clan's prestige any among the uh, various other families and clans and so forth. Well, I mean, any Gentile would have been uh, a mar on the on the family name anyway. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's all I'm trying to illustrate here. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, one of your sons is going to be born here, and yet he is eternal. How does that work? Well, we understand how it works. Through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his entrance into the world. And yet, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and yet... He existed in eternity past. Wonderful prophecy here in Micah chapter 5. Even, uh, of course, there was really no debate on it. Matthew chapter 2 makes it clear when Herod needed to find out where the Messiah was going to be born, the uh, opinion of the rabbis in his day was unanimous. Matthew chapter 2. The Magi arrived from the east, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Here's some Gentiles that understood the significance of the star. And uh, interesting story there. We'll be in this chapter here not too, much, not too long from now. So gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem. No question, and we even know which Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet in you, Bethlehem. And he quotes Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Notice, quite interesting, um, it's uh, a partial quotation. does not refer to the eternity past incident, but in any event, they had the, the territory nailed down. There were other geography prophecies in the Old Testament, though, that included Egypt, Galilee, and Basra. We mentioned some of these already in the process of the introduction to this study. There were other geographic prophecies as well that included Egypt, Galilee, and Basra. Each one perfectly fulfilled in the Father's plan. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, Out of Egypt I will call my son. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And so we're left with, or the Old Testament saints looking ahead would be left with what might appear to them as a contradiction saying well what's it going to be is it Bethlehem or is it Egypt how confusing might that be 
And yet we understand there's no contradiction there. They were both fulfilled. He was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah chapter 5 said. And yet he was called out of Egypt, just like Hosea 11.1 1 says. Still in Matthew 2. We see the sovereignty of God at work here also. After uh, Herod finds out that Bethlehem is the birthplace, he sends his minions to go murder all the babies. And uh, every male two years and under was to be murdered. And so uh, the angel appears to Joseph in verse 13. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now keep in mind, Mary and Joseph are dirt poor broke. When they went to the temple to offer the offering, they gave the cheapest one they could. The father gave three levels of, of offering to dedicate a firstborn child to the Lord and they took the cheapest of the three indicating the humble means that they had and the resources that they had available to them. How in the world can they afford to travel to Egypt, let alone live once they get there? Well, again, sovereignty at work. The father just supplied them with all the gold, frankincense, and myrrh they would need to finance their exile living in, uh, in the land of Egypt. Isn't, isn't God wonderful? Working out all these details ahead of time, showing up with providing the gold, frankincense, and myrrh and everything they'd need to sustain them. And now they have the ability to flee and live in Egypt for a period of time. So Joseph got up and took the child. Every time we see Joseph, he's getting these dreams and he's obeying. Got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Isn't God great? Bethlehem was fulfilled. Egypt was fulfilled. No contradictions. It's only us looking forward, trying to work it all out and figure things out. That's why I always try to be cautious when we deal with tribulational studies, millennial studies, fullness of time studies, understanding that we have prophetic glimpses looking forward, but it's only after they're fulfilled that we'll be able to look back and see the perfection of the Father and how he brought them all to pass. There's also a Galilee reference in Isaiah 9.1. So hold your finger there in Matthew 2 because we're going to be back here in a moment. But turning back to Isaiah, chapter 9, in a passage that we will be looking at. And actually we've examined a few things with it already. Chapter 7 prophesied the virgin. Chapter 8 referenced the work of Emmanuel in shattering the nation that had Judah surrounded. Chapter 9 references the uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Tremendous prophecy that has to be understood as it pertains to Christ. But the reference in, in chapter 9 and verse 1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Where is this coming from? <laughs> Zebulun, Naphtali? Goodness. You know, search through your Old Testament and find me a good Bible story that took place in Zebulun. <laughs> find me a great event that happened in Naphtali. Find me a great Zebulonic prophet that ministered. And, I mean, these were not lands that were featured prominently in uh, the Old Testament at all. Later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. So we have a Galilee reference in addition to a Bethlehem reference in addition to a into a Egypt reference. And we're left wondering, well goodness gracious. Back to Matthew, we recognize that the Galilee reference was fulfilled as well, still in chapter 2. When Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, there's another dream, just try to count all the dreams of Joseph and find which ones are actually in response to his own prayers. I believe that the, the fear in verse 22a motivated prayer, which resulted in a warning in verse 22b. 
After being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. All right, so we have the Galilee reference, perfect fulfillment that occurs here. Luke uh, verse chapter 2 and verse 39 also references their settling in Nazareth within the region of Galilee. A final geographic reference I'll give you this morning includes Basra. Basra, and if you join me in Isaiah 63, we'll see this. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now here's another geographic reference, but it's different from the Bethlehem prophecy, the Egypt prophecy, the Galilee prophecy. We might call this the Basra prophecy or even the Edom prophecy coming out of the Edomite territory. And uh, we say, well, when was this fulfilled? Say, Pastor, you showed me the Egypt and the Bethlehem and the Galilee, and we see how that all works now, but what about this one? When did Christ ever go to Edom? When did he ever go to Basra? I don't remember that Bible story. Well, it's because it hasn't happened yet. This is a second Advent geographical reference. It does give us a clue, though, to what will occur in the tribulational times as a part of the overall warfare of Armageddon. Why? So the, the question is, who is this? And the answer is, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. It's God himself. And uh, the only one who is righteous, the only one who saves. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples, that's the Gentiles, in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is not first advent. <laughs> All right? This is second advent. This is victory at Armageddon. This is victory. This is not the humble child who's born. This is the victorious conqueror who comes to deliver. Related over, those boxes are supposed to be dashes, by the way. Uh, Revelation 19, verses 13 through 16. Revelation 19, verses 13 through 16. You could even begin the reading back in verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. The Father gives him this name. It's his intimate name between him and the Father. You and I are likewise entitled to that new name if we are indeed overcomers, according to Revelation 2 and 3. His eyes are a flame of fire. I read that already. Verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He puts on the raiment that is described for us in Isaiah chapter 63. He's not wearing the priestly garment that we saw in chapter 1 when John saw him in priestly garment. This is dressed for battle. He is clothed with, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I believe there are angelic divisions associated with these armies. There are resurrected human divisions assigned with these armies. The bride is with him, seated on these horses. I had someone dispute that with me a few years back. In fact, laughed at me and, and uh, basically considered me to be the biggest simpleton in the world that, uh, that this is an angelic reference and cannot refer to the church, cannot refer to, even though the church is promised fine linen, white and clean, uh, that this cannot possibly be the church, that he is the Lord God of hosts, these are angelic armies, and so forth. But uh, my Bible says, thus we shall always be with the Lord, and so 
post-rapture, we go where he goes, and here he is on his horse, and we're on our horses, and uh, so forth. So there are angelic components. Don't, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't dispute the angelic components, because there's a lot of demons that will be, that will be uh, dealt with at Armageddon, but there are also going to be human forces as well. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, for the following we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. In the Hebrew, that was called the peoples. This is very consistent with what we read in Genesis in Isaiah 63. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This event is not yet happened. This event is future. And uh, any <laughs> any song, see, people ask why we didn't sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic Sunday morning. Those those verses talk about treading the wine press and talking about his wrath and talking about things as fulfillment of Isaiah 63 and fulfillment of, of Revelation 19. And I'm sorry, that's yet future. That's second advent. That's Jesus Christ seated on his throne. That's not any activity of, of America. That's not any activity of human effort. That's not certainly any historical activity. I don't care if... Uh, you know, if, if you think this is something to do with a Civil War approach or anything like that, it doesn't matter. Civil War, World War II, Vietnam, I don't care what war America gets engaged in. That prophecy of Jesus Christ treading, trampling through the vintage, uh, treading through the wine press, that's Second Advent, that's His glory. And for, for a human being to claim that, I think, is something else. So, that being said... Uh, the Basra is another geographic reference in the Old Testament that we want to look at, we want to consider, we want to understand where its application is. And for you and I, we can understand it clearly being Second Advent and its application. If you're not a dispensationalist, then you've got to do something else with it. <laughs> you've got to figurative, you know, put in some figurative language and, and explain it away or find some kind of way to make those verses disappear. Because Basra was not fulfilled literally the way that Egypt was, Galilee was, Bethlehem was, and uh, I think the the uh, covenant approach and the the amillennial approach is uh, is destructive to the text itself. Okay, point C: the Davidic lineage fulfilled the Davidic prophecy. The Davidic lineage fulfilled the Davidic prophecy that both Joseph and Mary were Davidic heirs is evident from the gospel record and is required from the prophetic record. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, Isaiah 9, verse 7, Psalm 132, verse 11. The Davidic lineage fulfilled the Davidic prophecy. 2 Samuel 7, 12. See, God didn't go to a virgin from the tribe of, of uh, Gad, I didn't go to a virgin from the tribe of Asher or the tribe of um, Issachar, the tribe of Ephraim. Went to the tribe of Judah, to the family of David. Second Samuel 7 and verse 12. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. In the immediate promise that was voiced to David himself, had a partial fulfillment in his son Solomon, but had an ultimate fulfillment in his greater son, Jesus Christ, born a thousand years later. Uh, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's verse 16 of Second Samuel chapter 7. The fact that this was not... Uh, Totally and 100% fulfilled by Solomon is evident by the way the later prophets took it. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, for example. This is the same passage that referenced Galilee and Nazareth, uh, or not Nazareth, but referenced Galilee of the Gentiles, the light shining in darkness. 
Verse 6 says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The necessity for the Christ to be born of the line of David to be seated on the Davidic throne. Finally, Psalm 132 and verse 11. Psalm 132 and verse 11. This is a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. See the promise that he made to David. That's how verse 1 starts off. Verse 10 says, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Verse 11, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. A uh, truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Okay? That's a promise. The Davidic lineage fulfilled the Davidic prophecy. There are three more, and I'll just list them for you here and give you the scriptures. Point D, the virgin's son fulfilled the virgin's prophecy. Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. Isaiah 7.14, It was necessary for no human father to be involved. We spelled this out in some previous classes. The passing of the sin nature is one item. <laughs> that uh, the, the lamb had to be without spot and blemish. He had to be born sinless and perfect. We gave you reasons why the virgin birth was necessary. Point E, the child born and son given prophecy is also fulfilled. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born, a son will be given. This is how uh, from you... O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, too small to be considered among the clans of Judah, shall you, from you shall one come forth. And yet his going forths are from eternity past. A child is born, yet a son is given. Born in time and yet eternal in his being. The child born and son given prophecy is also fulfilled. That's how he says... Uh, I mean, I mean, Lego soy. Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. His going forth were from eternity past. They were, they were shocked. They were skeptical. They said, "You're not even fifty years old. What are you talking about, Abraham, our father?" Then point F. The the manger and cloth wrappings. I know I'm going very rapidly through this. We'll come back to these last three points next week and make sure we're solid on it before we proceed. The manger and the cloth wrappings. The manger and the cloth wrappings. Now, were they prophesied? Were they? Can, can you find an Old Testament verse about those? Okay. I think it's stretching it if you're looking for verses on those. People have tried. You can find references to humility, certainly. Um, but the manger and cloth wrappings, they weren't an Old Testament prophecy. They were an immediate prophecy, an immediate sign for the contemporary witnesses. Luke 2, verses 6, 7, and 12. And I am out of time. But remember, there's not only long-term prophecy at work. There's not only prophecies that were made uh, in Isaiah's case 700 years ago, in David's case 1,000 years ago, in the seed of the woman case 4,000 years ago. There's a lot of long-term prophecies being fulfilled when Jesus Christ is born. But there's also contemporary signs that are being given. We often recognize that with prophetic ministries that there are short-term fulfillments and then there are long-term fulfillments. And the short-term fulfillments are the evidence and testimony that those long-term fulfillments likewise will be fulfilled. Okay? You know, it's easy. You say for a prophet like Isaiah, for example, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, okay. But that's 700 years from now. No one's going to live that long to see it fulfilled. The people of Isaiah's day, how are they going to know whether Isaiah is a legitimate prophet or not? Okay? You know, I can, I can make a bunch of predictions, but then tell you that they're not going to be ful fulfilled until the year 2744. Well, are you going to be very impressed with my prediction ability? 
I don't think so. <laughs> you can't prove me wrong. I can't prove myself right because I set that prophecy out hundreds of years from now and, and uh, I won't be around and you won't be around and so forth. That's why quite often with the prophetic gift there was short-term fulfillment as well as long-term fulfillment, immediate signs, miracles, and so forth that were given as the credentials, as the evidence of the legitimacy of the prophet. And the angel goes out there to the field and he gets these shepherds and says, this is what you're going to find. Um, verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and, and uh, saying, glory to the God in the highest and so forth. And guess what? The, uh, they came in a hurry, verse 16, and found their way to Mary and Joseph. And what do you know? The baby was laying there in the manger. <laughs> well, how about that? All right. Out of time, we'll come back to this next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the perfection of your plan. Plans formed long ago in perfect faithfulness. Father, this is a day that we are living one day at a time, anticipating, um, listening for that trumpet, asking that it might even be the day in which the Lord returns. And yet, thanking you that that you accomplish your plan in your perfect timing with your perfect wisdom beyond anything that we could ask or think. So, Father, we much rather have your will, not ours, be done. We much rather set our plans aside and embrace the plan that you have for us on a daily basis. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.